you, Thank Laura. You. You're so precious. Good morning, ladies. The blessing of the Lord be upon you. The blessing of the Lord, it maketh rich, and he adds no sorrow with it. What then does he do with our sorrow? In that marvelous alchemy of his own grace, he takes even our sorrows, turns them into joy, and enriches our lives even by the sorrow. I appreciate the grace of God that's working in our lives, and I know that throughout this weekend, he will be dealing with many areas of sorrow. But our theme for the weekend has to do with the harvest. I'd like to marry those two into one. This afternoon I'll be speaking more on the personal journey of sorrow, from sorrow to joy. But this morning I want you to go with me to the book of Ruth and look at it from a harvest standpoint. Because it's all about the harvest. Now the little book of Ruth is tucked in the scriptures much like the little town of Bethlehem was tucked in the lowly hills of Judah. It's a little book. It's in a, it's in a little valley between two major, major books of the Bible. Before it is the book of Judges, if you don't know about the book of Judges, you won't understand the placement of the book of Ruth. After it is the book of 1 Samuel. If you don't understand the significance of 1 Samuel, you won't understand the significance of the book of Ruth. But if you read the very first verse in the book of Ruth, it will tell you that this little story that started with a little family that just took a little sojourney to go down into the land of Moab, leaving the land of Judah in a famine time, that this happened in the time of the judges. But if you were to back up, whether it's on the same page or back up to the page before it, you find out what was happening in the book of Judges is summarized in the very last word of that book, that there was no king in Israel. Everyone did that which is right in his own eyes. There was a lack of leadership. There was a lack of godly leadership. But this was before there was any intention to have a king when God himself was the king. That God never intended from the original purpose for his people, for them to be a kingdom like unto the other kingdoms of the world. That he desired for them to be a kingdom of priests, ruled by the priesthood, who taught the law of God. And that was the standard for all of life. But as time progressed, the priests weren't doing their work. And the people weren't living under the law that God had given them. 
They weren't concerned for holiness. And so a terrible cycle started taking place that you'll see over and over in the book of Judges. When I was much younger, I used to think it was a long, long time, 40 years. 30 years, even 20 years. But we find cycles throughout the book of Judges, though it's not a long book, it covers many, many years in the history of Israel. And in that history, the cycle would take place. God would raise up a deliverer, would give them mighty victory. And then for a season, they would again embrace his law, live according to his upright rules. And then they would again do evil in the sight of the Lord. And this became the cycle. They would do evil in the sight of the Lord. And then he would sell them into the hand of the enemy. I'd like you to say that phrase with me. He would sell them into the hand of the enemy. For my own sense, I believe that's what's happening to our nation sell them into the hand of the enemy, and they would come under oppression. They would be robbed of their defenses, they would have no weapons, and a great enemy would take over and oppress them and would have more might and strength and more weaponry, more power, and would keep God's people in slavery until they would cry unto the Lord. Marianne gave you one of those times of crying earlier than the book of Judges. And when they would cry unto the Lord, then he would raise up a deliverer. And that deliverer would be so appreciated that like Moses, he would become the judge. He would be the leader. He would be the ruler. Some of them were righteous judges and some of them were not. Some came from lowly backgrounds. Some of them didn't seem qualified to be leaders, but they were the ones who would respond to the call of God and they would become the leaders. Some of them reticent. Some of them we wouldn't have thought should come into such a place. One of them, a woman. And of course, there is the interpretation that says the only reason that God had to use Deborah is that there wasn't a man he could call. <laughs> I, I have a hard time with that because I don't find any other volunteers and God has his way and even Barak wasn't a volunteer per se. God has his ways when he wants to persuade a man. He's the great persuader. But I believe rather it's because this Deborah was sensitive to what was happening in her nation and she started to care. And she saw how the struggles of people were such that the only answer for them was some word from God. And I think that she just had her kitchen outdoors under the palm tree and people started showing up and sitting down beside her and talking about their problems. And the word of the Lord began to flow forth from Deborah on an individual basis until all men were coming, not just women, men were coming from all over Israel to receive the word of the Lord because there was a famine in their time for the word of the Lord. And when it came time, where it was so obvious 
that this situation that they were in couldn't be tolerated anymore. Deborah says, then I arose. I arose, a mother in Israel, and I think she likely could have been a mother. Some believe she wasn't a married woman, that Lapidoth is something other than a husband, but whatever. I think she was a mother, but she became a mother who cared what was happening to the children of God, and she rose up. But again, the cycle after a few years would be that the people did evil in the sight of the Lord again, and then what? Then he sold them into the hand of the enemy. Then after 20, 30, usually 40 years, they were in such bondage that they cried to the Lord. Now, there was those of us who were around in 1962 and 63 when our grand Supreme Court decided to remove God from his place of headship over our nation, warned, understood, knew it wasn't going to be good. What would be the out, outcome? After 30 years, studies began to be made of the social differences in our country. And the rise of crime and the rise of illegitimate births and the rise in divorce and the rise in all these horrible, terrible things. And I saw a survey that was extremely detailed comparing by a secular uh, uh, survey comparing the state of things in 1960 with the state of things in 1990. And they just didn't know what had happened over those 30 years that made such a difference with such an intensity in what we would call evil. But they couldn't make any connection. But we knew. And the grand prayer movement began to rise and we began to meet and call upon the Lord and the cry of God's people went up and God heard and we've hoped for a deliverer but we're looking for someone in humankind that can truly, truly deliver us from evil. And so we've watched a cycle now of 40 years and things just aren't better. There's a cry for redemption. There's a cry for change. But the result in the book of Judges was that because the priestly council was no longer godly, because the priests weren't teaching their people the law of God, they weren't walking people in the ways of God. They weren't counseling them in the ways of God. Or people were rebelling against their counsel. It goes both ways. That there came a time of famine in the land. And you know, it's, it's just, it's an absolute principle and fact that from the beginning of time when God wants to judge man, he causes the land to suffer. We talk about being under the curse, but we need to be careful in how we read the book of Genesis that it doesn't say that he cursed man. It says that he cursed the land for man's sake. 
And if you watch it throughout history, throughout time, and throughout God's times of dealing with his people in the scriptural record, you'll find that ultimately the judgment is going to come upon the earth, upon the physical earth, that the heavens are going to be refused, the clouds are going to be refused, the moisture that they're accustomed to carrying that the heavens will be required to hold the rain, that the earth will be required to break up in parched ground and become hard and fallow, thirsty and dry. I remember being in Mozambique after seven years of famine and civil war and literally standing in a riverbed where that day they dug 14 feet down. And there was not a sign of moisture. The earth begins to scream out, and this is Romans chapter eight, that the whole earth is groaning and travailing together until now in pain, but that's the groan of the expression of pain of the earth that is suffering. And then Paul says, even we who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption, waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God, but what we really want is the redemption of the body, and the way we really want that is, get us out of here. But we know with all this pain around us, we need to pray. Problem is we don't know how to pray as we ought. We know we ought, we don't know how to pray. We need a helper. And so he gave us a helper for our praying and he takes the groan, the groan of the expression of the pain of those who suffer and of the earth itself that's creaking on its axis. And then he takes the groan of the spirit-filled believers who have just the earnest of our inheritance, the down payment of everything we're going to receive, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit that is given to us. And with that, we begin to groan in empathy with a suffering world. But if you've ever tried to groan in empathy with a suffering world, you find yourself in a place where you cannot bear the burden. You cannot. And so the Holy Spirit says, why don't you let me do the praying on your behalf and instead of you, when he says he'll pray for us, it doesn't mean he'll pray about us, it means he's going to pray instead of us like a lawyer talking instead of his client saying, you don't know the question, how will you know the answers? Let me do the talking, I, I understand the issues. And Paul said the Holy Spirit does the groaning and when he does, it's not bringing forth wind it's going to birth something. That when he takes the travail, he searches all the hearts, not just the bad hearts. He's searching good hearts to see whose hearts are faithful toward the Lord. He's searching for the hearts of the humble. He's searching for those who are upright. He's searching for perfect hearts. And he says, I'll join with your heart. I'll do the praying for you. And I'll bring you into the ultimate intention that God has. Because he knows what the Spirit has in mind. I'm preaching from Romans 8 from the book of Ruth, can you tell? Yeah. 
And he begins to take up the groan of the intentions of God, the ultimate intentions, the purposes of God. What does God ultimately want to accomplish and bring forth through this pain and this travail? Because it isn't to be wasted pain. Even the disciplines of God and the dealings of God are not to be wasted. They're to bring forth something fresh and new of the purposes of God in that generation. And so when he begins to groan and travail with the saints and for the saints instead of the saints and through the saints, Paul said not only does he search the hearts, he knows what he has in mind, he knows what his intention is, but also he begins to pray instead of the saints according to, King James says, according to the will of God, accurate translation, according to God. What does God want? What is God thinking? How does God see this thing? Where is it going? What's it coming to? What's he going to birth? And then you may have Romans 8.28, but you may not have Romans 8.28 until you get Romans 8.27. If the Holy Spirit isn't birthing it, it's not going to be good. But if he is taking the groaning, if he is doing the travailing, if he is bringing forth according to the intention and mind of the Spirit of God, praying according to God, then everything, we know that, everything, but it starts with and. It's a coordinate conjunction. It's joined to verse 27. You can't have it without that. It's equal rank. And then we can know that all things, even the bad things, even the things of pain and travail and groaning and suffering and sorrow, even what the land has paid of a price for the sins of man can have something birthed and brought forth that will do the work of God in the hearts of people. And then we know that all things will work together for good to those who are loving God even in the midst of the pain, who are loving God in the hard times, who are loving God through the times of chastening, even the times of war, even the times of famine. They're loving God. They're choosing God above all gods. They're saying only one God. And if they love him, they will say, and I know I'm called according to his purpose. And then his purpose will be accomplished. Such is the story of Ruth. That when the land was travailing, when there was a famine in the land, when the land could not fulfill its created purpose, when even if somebody gave the land dry seed, and even if it opened its mouth to receive the seed, and opened the womb of the earth to receive the seed, it could not produce because there was no rain. You have to know even in the scripture that is called forth a time and time again at offering time from Malachi that says if you bring your tithe into the storehouse prove me now test me, see if I will not pour you out a blessing that you cannot contain. 
If you think of that in an American way of how we pay our tithes, we bring money. But when they paid tithes, they brought from their harvest. They brought the first fruits of the harvest. They brought what they brought in from the field that week. They took the first part of it and set it aside in their own storehouse for that week. But when they came to the house of God at the end of the week, they carried bushels of grain. They carried harvest back to God and gave them a first fruits offering. And he said, when you stop giving me the first fruits of the harvest and the other things for which he was updating them on the record with him, he said, if, you, if you'll bring it to me, you'll give me the first fruit. See what I'll do. When God said, open the windows of heaven, honey, he didn't mean the treasury is on the second floor and he's going to open a trap door and drop money. It's not dollar bills and coins falling out of the heavens. It is literally rain. Literally rain. The opening of the heavens always means he's going to rain, R-A-I-N. He's going to let water come from the clouds and come down and do what it's supposed to in the earth. And when he pours out that blessing that you can't contain, that fallow ground, that hard ground, that dry ground, that unproductive ground, that barren ground, that famine ground, is beginning to open up and be saturated. But it won't be able to contain it. It'll be like floods on dry ground. But it will eventually soak in. And when it does, what a harvest is going to come from the seed that is already in the ground. And from the seed that has been preserved from time before in the ground where it couldn't be fruitful. But there's no seed even to plant. If he doesn't bring forth out of the seeds that have already been planted in hope and in faith, there's no new seed. It's been eaten. It's gone. There isn't anything to plant. It has to be a brand new harvest from an old planting to start with. But soon the land will begin to rejoice, the very earth, saying, I feel it now. I'm not dry anymore. I'm not thirsty anymore. I'm filled with water. And now I can give nourishment to the seed that is in me. And I can cause it to come forth. And I can be fruitful. And I can give a harvest that they won't be able to contain because I have received from heaven the rain. The earth longs to be fruitful, but it is man who determines how the earth must suffer. In the end, God is going to produce a new heaven and a new earth, and it's all going to be glorious. But for now, we're hearing the groaning. Now, it's one thing when it's the very earth, which is the beginning of this book, the famine. It's another thing when it's people who are unfruitful, unproductive. Whatever seed they had begins to rot and die. And there's no new harvest that can come of their lives. And that's the story of Naomi, who herself had carried seed and had been fruitful. And then she watched the harvest of her life die. At the end of the book, we lead into 1 Samuel. 
The very last word of the book of Ruth. Can you give me the last word of the book of Ruth? What's the last word of the book of Ruth? David. 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 At the beginning of the book, there's no king in Israel. Everyone's doing what's right in his own eyes. Now it's going to take a while before David becomes king. Because in the meantime, we're going to get a king who will do whatever is right in his own eyes. He still won't listen to the law of God. And his kingdom that could have been established is going to be completely wiped out. And his seed is going to be annihilated. And there will be no harvest from the life of Saul. Except the process that has been put into David. And here comes David. And what's the promise concerning David's seed? The son of David will take the throne and will rule forever and ever and ever. Where is David born? Where is his hometown? In the little town of Bethlehem. Little Ephrata, little area in Judah. Oh, you may be small, the prophet said, but someone's coming out of you that's very famous. What does that have to do with the book of Ruth? That's the last blessing that is given in the book of Ruth, that when Ruth does have a child, there is going to come forth blessing who say to her, may the blessing that's upon you be such that you will be like Leah and Rachel who built the house of Israel and you will build the house of Israel through your seed. Nourishment is going to come back to the famine-driven Naomi whose husband, listen to what his name means, Elimelech led her out of Bethlehem to Moab but his name means to whom God is king. Say it with me. To whom God is king. He's representing the old. When the people lived with the knowledge that God is our king, we need no other king. We're ruled by him. We don't need kings of the earth. But he represents those who, though they've carried it in name, Marianne went so well into this last night, I don't have to go in detail. But though they carried it in name, they didn't live that way. And so it can be debated. Did Elimelech pray about it and hear from God, go down to Moab during this time of famine? Or did he just escape the consequences of the sins of the people, separate himself from the judgment, go down to a foreign land, a cursed land, a land truly under curse, the land of Moab? Did he do that out of just his desire to escape? Or was God his king? And did he hear somewhere deep inside him during this time, you take your little family, you go down into Moab because there's a new harvest beginning. And I've got a harvest down in Moab. And I'm assuming you know the story because I don't dare start taking it verse by verse by verse because I love the... I love the book of Ruth, every verse, every verse, every verse, every verse preaches and can preach for an hour. But there was a harvest down in Moab. 
And to all you sorrowing women, I want to say to you, and I'll do more this afternoon in my workshop, you can count on it if you will be faithful to God even when you don't understand him. If even when you feel that your name no more should be called pleasant one, which is what Naomi means. When you change your own name to Mara, bitter, because the hand of the Almighty has gone out against me, it seems. And the Lord has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full. I'm coming back empty. I don't understand. You see, sorrow so changes people that even her friends didn't recognize her. Now, my Bible's written in monotone, so I never know exactly how they said what they said. But when she walked back into that village, tired and old and bedraggled, perhaps she had been gone as much as 20 years. And she came on the edge of the city and somebody saw her and her friends came. And they asked as they looked at her, is this Naomi? I don't know how they asked it. Did they really, really recognize her and say, oh, is this Naomi? Oh, it's Naomi. Is this really Naomi? Have you come home after so long a time? We've been waiting for you. Oh, can it be? Is it really real? Naomi's back. Or did they look at her and say, is this Naomi? Is this the pleasant one that went out of here youthful and with rosy cheeks and, and all full of joy until the day her husband said, I'm taking you away from your family? She said, don't even use the name Naomi anymore because there's a mix-up of Mara and me. I'm not the pleasant one. I'm bitter. Everything has been bitter in my life since I left you. But I say to you, if you will still say, but the Lord has dealt with me, even if it's been bitter, if he's still, still having dealings with you, if he's still involved in your life, if you're still saying, I don't know whether I can trust you anymore because everything I entrusted to you I lost, but I still will obey you. I still will serve you. I'll still walk with you. I'll still wait to hear a word of hope even down here in my Moab, my place of loneliness and separation, my place of loss where I feel like an exile from the blessings of God. I'm still going to wait for a word from you. And there came a day when she heard that the Lord had visited his people again in Bethlehem and there was bread in the house of bread, Bethlehem house of bread, that there was bread in the house of bread, that the harvest was come and that there was now hope for happiness for his people in Bethlehem. And the word grabbed a hold of her. It got to the depths of her. It put a will into her. It put a rise up into her, and she arose. She got up. She stood up. She rose up in her spirit so that she might come up out of the place where she was. 
and headed back to Bethlehem. I'll take you on that journey this afternoon. But if you will let God have your life the way you sing about it so well up here, I promise you, even from your journeys of loss and sorrow and famine and heartache and aloneness, Marianne named several things last night, including loneliness, I promise you, you'll come back returning, bringing your sheaves with you. There's a harvest. It was no small harvest that she got in Moab. She went in in a time of famine. And it was a terrible time of the stripping of her land to where all she could see on her fruitful field, once fruitful field, was stubble. Her crop had been cut down. There was no hope. When she took the two daughters-in-law for whom she not only felt but legally had full responsibility, she spoke of her hopelessness. She said to them at the border, I'm too old. Now that's discouraging for people like me. I'm too old to have a husband. No, I don't have one. No, I never did. Yes, I had chances. Yes, I almost did. Don't feel sorry for me. <laughs> I've determined he kept me single so I could keep other people married. <laughs> I do. I spend so much time in marriage counseling. No, I didn't have a husband, but my mother did, and I know what one is. He's 92. She's 91. They're still lovers. When she stood at that border with them, and said, I'm too old to have a husband, but if I could say, I have hope. Now if she says, if I could say I have hope, what's she saying? I don't have any hope. If I could bear a son tonight, would you tarry for him till he be grown? That's another message for women who have immature husbands. <laughs> it is. Will you tarry for him until he be grown? Will you stay with him? and refrain from going to find another husband. Well, I grow this one up. And he does it. When Jesus gets inside a man, he grows him up. She had no hope. She was in a famine herself. The land of her womb was dry fallow, cracked, no hope. But she had risen at the sound of the word that God had visited his people. Now, who did she take with her? You know, they got to the border. She tried to persuade them to go back. She said, go back, my daughters, go back, go back. I can't fulfill my obligation to you. 
One of them did, though she wept and cried and said, I don't want to leave you. She did. And we see her name, Orpa, means, and by the way, Ofra is a reversal of the spelling of Orpa. And I, I heard that her mother just misspelled it, but that's what somebody said. But this Orpa, though she said she was committed to Naomi, wasn't willing to pay the price. And Naomi said, you go back to your house of your mother, maybe she can find you a husband. But she also said, go back to your gods. Go back to your people, but go back to your gods. And so there's a great significance when Ruth says, no, I'm not going back to my people. I'm not going back to my mother's house. I'm not going back to my gods. I'm going with you. Now listen, if Naomi was a bitter old woman with a bitter, acrimonious edge to everything that she said about God, I don't think a beautiful young Moabitess would have said, I want your God. Somehow through her sorrow, she had still kept worshiping. And so Orpah turns back to her gods and to her people, to her past. The name Orpah means the back. It's the back of a horse's head. Could be worse. It's the main. The word literally comes from a word that means decline or incline. And so it's the incline at the back of the horse's head, and then it's the mane, the hair that grows there. And this is all we see of Orpah as she turns and goes back. We see the back of her. But here comes Ruth, whose name means friend, also means beauty with a question mark in some books, but the picture of friendship. But when she comes alongside Naomi, she's entering into that covenant not with Naomi only. She said, your God will be my God. When Boaz speaks of her later, he says, this God under, whom, under whose wings you have come to trust means you've put your whole life under the care of this God of heaven. And the two of them traveled, and then you'll find at the end of chapter one, when I first came in yesterday and was just going back to the bookstore to put our things in there, a lady came up to me, I don't know which one of you it was, I, I, forgive me, I don't remember, but I, she just almost knocked me off my feet because she wanted, she was looking for the harvest. I'm looking for the harvest. And she said, and, I, and, and today the devotional was, and I thought, did they send out a devotional book that all attendees are supposed to read? The devotional was about Ruth and Naomi when they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the harvest. And I just looked at her and thought, I, I missed the devotional today, but this is what I'm full of. And I said, I'm going to speak on that tomorrow. First confirmation, there have been others. They came to Bethlehem. They went until they came, but they came to Bethlehem at the beginning, say it with me, at the beginning of the barley harvest. Do you know what season that is? Do you know the significance of that on the calendar, on the calendar of the church, in the history of the church? The beginning of barley harvest is the feast of Pentecost. 
It's the first fruits of the harvest. Penta means five. It just means 50 days after the Passover. It didn't have anything to do with speaking in tongues. It didn't have anything to do with the the historical movement of Pentecost. It had to do with 50 days after Passover. But it had to do with 50 days after Passover. We're into the beginning of barley harvest. We've got the first fruits of the harvest. And it's time to come and gather all the people, old and young, men and women, little children, sons and daughters daughters, servants, and men servants all must come together for Pentecost to celebrate the first fruits of the harvest because the seed that has died has been resurrected in the ground and it is now bringing forth manifold. That's why there were people out of every tongue and every nation and every language group, every kindred, every tribe on earth as the first fruits of the harvest that is coming. But the harvest harvest isn't complete until the wheat harvest is finished. And so you see in the next chapter, Ruth going into the field to glean. But at the end of that chapter, let me tell you where we are. At the end of chapter 2, we're at the end of the harvest of barley and wheat. It's time for the ingathering of the full harvest. It's the Feast of Tabernacles. It's when everybody sleeps out under a temporary dwelling. People build builds, build booths and people sleep on the threshing floor. It's winnowing time. It's time to see what's the true, true harvest what has come. And it's a time when the Lord of the harvest is so completely involved in his harvest that he will not leave the threshing floor even at night. And so when you get into chapter 3 of the book of Ruth and Naomi is saying, oh, it's time now, honey. It's time for you to get more involved in the harvest rather than being concerned only for what you can glean a little bit of the time and whose field you can serve on and what position can you have in the church and whether you can be an officer of a glow or whether you can somehow get involved in women of the word and maybe if you can find some feet that you can serve in that maybe you can get something to meet your needs so that you can be satisfied and maybe you can get a little bit that you can take home and you can give it to the people that you are waiting upon and serving and it's all about me and mine and what can I get from his field it's coming into the grace of the Lord and here's what you see overall that the intention of God for his people is more than just, thank you, Marianne, for the good beginning you set me up, just saving them and delivering them out of Moab. What is Moab? Do you know what Moab is? It's two things. It's the heritage of sin that comes because of two single young women who were frustrated in no man's land. Come on. Because after Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed from their little city of Zoar, they finally had to go further up the mountain with only their dad with them the only man in their lives. 
And they looked out on the scorched earth around them as far as they could see with their little single eyes, but not single-eyed for the purposes of God. Looking out of, how can I be fulfilled? How, how am I ever going to be satisfied? How can I fulfill my purpose? I'm a woman. I have a womb. I'm a womb man. That's what the word woman means. It's from the old English, womb man. And I, I, there's no seed, and, and it's a famine all around me. And what are we going to do? And two single girls talk together. And they say, we can't live without a man. Can't be whole without a man. Yes, I'm single. This is authentic. If a married woman were saying it to you, then you'd say, well, she doesn't understand. <laughs> well, I do. And out of their short-sightedness, and their desire to be fulfilled, thinking only with a man, not understanding what that thing that had just happened to Sodom and Gomorrah was all about. At least they did have a desire for a man. <clears throat> never, never thought of that before, never said it before. Must be inspired. No, that, it, it's normal, it's right, it's good. Even though their daddy had offered to give one of them to the men of Sodom. And only an angel saved her life. Only an angel saved her life. Her daddy was willing to sacrifice her. Just trying to get men to be normal in their desire. But now, with even that natural, good, true desire, they're so short-sighted and so self-aware that they've never thought of asking God, where do we go from here? What's our future? How can we help to reproduce a new crop of people in the earth who are godly? And so they connive. I call it manipulation. <laughs> Is this not unbelievable? They connive and manipulate their own dad into drunkenness. You get him tonight, you get him tomorrow night. And they both conceived, and the word Moab means of her father. Which means that the whole background of Moab is born out of a mess from mixed up troubled women who don't understand the purposes of God and they're all for themselves. Can you believe a woman would voluntarily commit incest against her father? But that's the first thing Moab represents, that it's all the mess of our past, it's all the curse that comes because of it, and, and it's been talked about, it'll be talked about, all the mess that happens to women. I told one of my former students here yesterday, I don't know if I should tell it publicly, but I'm going to tell you. At the hairdressers the other day, I chose a magazine. I chose, deliberately chose, to read the magazine for teenage girls that sets a standard for teenage girls, 17. I went away from there, I, I, was, I said to my hairdresser, who's a Christian, I said, I want you to know why I'm doing this. 
I need to know what's being fed to the teenagers I'm receiving as students at Elam Bible Institute. I don't know whether to tell you to get one or not. It's horrible. They are teaching our teenagers how to sin. They're teaching them how to entice young men. They're teaching them how to prepare for sex. They're teaching them horribly vivid, graphic, awful stuff. And it's the standard for teenagers. And people say we read it for fashions for teenagers. I saw very little fashion in it. And yet the last article that I read was the devastating story of of a teenage girl who eventually set the house on fire so she could burn her stepfather to death because he was violating her for so long. But her mother was a prostitute and, 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 and. On all the other things they had quips along the bottom that would be advice, tips. On this article there was no tip, there was no advice, it was just the tragic story and I thought, what? From the beginning of this magazine where you're teaching young women to sin and to prepare to sin, you now have written an article that tells them the consequence of a mother's prostitution and all of this mess that's going on and you have no tips to give them now. But they won't make a connection that those things that they're advising them there will somehow be connected to what is going on here until somebody steps in. And I looked at my little former student. She's so little, but she is powerful. And I said, get them while you can. Go after them. Get them now. Get the teenagers. I asked her, who reads the 17? I said, probably by 13. Or t-. She said, no, by 11, Sister Sylvia. They're reading 17. That's the whole mess of Moab. And Ruth is going to make a choice. She's going to stand at a border. And she's going to choose to leave her past behind with all the complications, with all the mess that's been in her own life, her own sorrow and everything that goes with it. She's going to leave Moab. And thank you, Marianne, that we know there is a deliverer who does set women free. You do not have to be handicapped for the rest of your life because of your mixed up, messed up past. You don't. There's a gospel. There's redemption. There's deliverance. But one of the biggest things that happened, has to happen, is for God to wake up the will of a young woman like Ruth to say, I will. So don't ask me to go back. I will not go back. Don't say it to me again. I will not return to that. Wherever you go, I will to go. Wherever you're going to stay, I will to stay there. Wherever you die, I will to be there when you die, and I'll stay there till I die. Why? Where is she going? She is going back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. It's going to be the house of David. It's going to be the house of Jesus the Christ. It's going to be the place where the Redeemer is born. She's going back to Bethlehem. And you have to step out of that. But the second thing that Moab means or represents is that system, that nation, that people who withstood the people of God on their journey into 
the fulfillment of God's purpose and plan for them. And Moab withstood them. Moab tried to get a curse put upon this whole story of Balak and Balaam, which took three long chapters and numbers to tell. It's a significant story. But God wouldn't let them curse because he had already blessed. And you know, if you preach on... <laughs> if you preach on things like God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent, or if you say, hath the God not spoken and shall he not make it good? Hath he not said and shall he not do it? Are those good words? Do you know you're preaching the words of Balaam, the false prophet? <laughs> yeah. Because God overcame his false motivations with an anointing upon him to prophesy a confirmation of the blessing upon God's people. But he also ended up putting a curse on Moab that wanted to put a curse on Israel. And so it represents all the forces that are against the purposes of God in your life. Everything that tries to hinder, as Marianne said, hinder the harvest. It's everything that comes against God's perfect will for fulfilling you according to his grace and his mercy. But Ruth crossed the line. She's leaving Moab never to return. But there is another significance. And it is this, that the harvest is never going to be complete until it includes the harvest of the Gentiles. And God has sent them into Gentile territory. If he did lead them there, and if he didn't lead them there, he's redeeming it by giving her a harvest out of the Gentile territory. And in comes little Ruth, a little Gentile girl, a despised girl, a girl that should have been rejected. And God raises her to a place of favor, sets her up where she becomes the one in the lineage of David. And she herself becomes a symbol of the redeemed from among the Gentile nations and Boaz is going to receive her why he already knows about those Gentiles why his mama is Rahab his mama is the first Gentile saved when the children of Israel began to take their inheritance she's the one who knew about leaving the red rope out there so that those men when they came back would not destroy her or her house or anyone that was in her house and household salvation happened for Rahab and along came a salmon. Now you know about salmon. They swim upstream. <laughs> and this salmon said, I'm swimming upstream. I'm going against the tide. I'm marrying that redeemed Gentile woman and I'm going to make her fruitful. And he did. It wasn't Boaz. Sorry. It was Boaz's father. Salmon said this, if I said it wrong. Salmon said, I'm going to make her fruitful, and out came Boaz. Boaz married Ruth. That's two generations of men marrying Gentiles. Now Boaz is half Gentile. Now let me bring it to how the harvest works for you. If we had just the first story of Ruth, first chapter of Ruth, where she makes her grand commitment to Naomi, She's going to serve her. She's going to be loyal. She makes covenant. She's going to walk every step of the way with the old woman. If that were all there were, that she fulfills the name friend and she teaches us a friendship, I would say it's a beautiful story. Come on, it's a beautiful story. If it's only 
that she is coming from behind. This cursed curtain. And she's stepping out into the newness of life in the fullness of blessing in Bethlehem. That would be a great story. If it's only that we're getting her saved, where she's, I've turned my map around, by the way. This is Moab now, and this is Blessing over here, because i got to walk into Blessing, and I don't want to walk off the platform. <laughs> we watched Mary Ann do that one time when she was preaching, didn't we? And there she went, there goes Mary Ann, the preacher. I like to follow you, but you're not discipling me in how to fall off a platform. If it were only that she chose God, she chose to follow God, she said, I'll love your God, that she got saved, that she made a decision to leave her past behind, that she got delivered out from under the curse of Moab, and she's now going toward Bethlehem. It's a grand story. But that's not the whole story. That's only chapter one. We're only at the beginning of harvest. If we just went into chapter two, ooh, wow, ooh, wow, whoa, 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 for a single woman, <laughs> give me a Boaz. Whoa, starting with the first thing said about him. He is a mighty man of wealth. By this time, why do we need him? Yeah, yeah, wealth would be good. If only that now she is saved, she just wants to serve. You know, there, there is a teaching out there in certain parts of the body of Christ that you're saved to serve. So all she can say is just let me serve. Where do I go? I just need a field. I just need a place to serve. If we could just say, well, she became a missionary in Bethlehem or she just did the lowly tasks. Or if you scan through the chapter, you'll find, I think, about 10 or more times the word glean. That now all she's concerned about, oh, I'm so grateful to be saved. I'm so grateful to be out of Moab. I'm here in the house of blessing. If I can just glean a little bit, I'll work hard. I'll serve pastor. Is there anything else I can do? Uh, yes, could you serve between midnight and 5 a.m. on the prayer team? Oh, but I get up at 5 2, and, uh, and, and you know, we're, well, that's all right. You still got those five hours between midnight and 5. Can you glean a little bit in the prayer meeting? Can you glean a little bit as a teacher? Can you glean? Can I just get enough gleanings and I'll go to the scripture? Oh, God, just give me enough to teach this lesson, please. I don't need big revelations like Marianne gets because they cover the whole globe. I just need enough for just my little class. Can I glean a little bit? And I have a mother-in-law I need to take care of. Can you give me enough grace to take care of her? And on the field, it happened to be that she had lighted upon the field of Boaz. And everything changed. And it's a matter now of just finding a place of service. No, he comes on, he blesses everybody. They bless him. Courtesy all over the place. He says, oh, Oh, whose damsel is this? Oh no, my Bible's written in monotone. I don't know how he said it. He might have said, whose damsel is this? <laughs> Wh whose damsel is that? I don't know. I just think it took a little higher pitch. I think there was a little ly lyric in it. Oh, whose damsel is this? No, 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 no. 
He's too dignified, he's too honorable a man. And so he starts making a place for her, and what you see is grace, 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 grace. And she ends up saying, how is it that I have found grace in thine eyes? I'm not like all your other maids, I'm not like anybody else, I'm different, and you like me? You are nice to me? He did nice things like say, come sit with me at the table. Oh, first day he saw her. He did things like tell the young men, leave her alone, that's big. Don't harass her. And by the way, come drink of the, of the water that, that my reapers drink from. He did all kinds of nice things. And at the end of the day, he did really nice things. Now, it would be wonderful if your story ended there, ended there, that you met the Lord of the harvest. Be wonderful if your story ended with, I went home with sacks full of grain because he let me glean in his field and I began to enjoy the harvest. There was enough to feed my mother-in-law. But that's not the story of the harvest. That thing turns. You begin to find out his grace has hooks in it. Good hooks. He's wanting to bring you into the harvest on another level. And so Naomi in her wisdom gives him an understanding, gives her an understanding. This man is the Lord of the harvest, but he's also our relative, and you've been brought into relationship with him, and now go lay yourself at his feet. We sang this morning something about, I'm, I'm giving you my whole life and all of that, but you know, when she gave him her whole life, she went so that he could cover her, so that he could take responsibility for her, so that he could meet all of her needs, so that he could make her fruitful, because there was still unfulfilled purpose in her life, because she had a sick and weakly husband, and his inheritance had never been fully claimed. And it took someone who understood that for him, Boaz, to keep his full inheritance, he had to be concerned that Ruth would get hers on behalf of the dead one. And here comes resurrection through redemption. And redemption begins to work so that there can be a harvest of people in the family of Malan. Boaz's whole purpose is, I'm going to raise up. I'm going to raise up. I'm going to raise up seed. There's going to be a new harvest in our family. I'm going to raise up seed in the name. I'm going to raise up the name of the dead one. I'm going to raise up seed because Boaz is a man of the harvest. And I tell you, when he takes your life, he is going to take all the barren fields that go with your life. He's going to take all the barren areas, all the things that have died, the things that once had hope and promise and no more. And the Redeemer is going to make you personally fruitful. But please keep going with me just for a couple more minutes. Because it wasn't just to raise up the name of the dead. And it wasn't just to make Ruth fruitful and give Naomi redemption and a nourisher of her old age. The Lord of the harvest loves to come into unity with his people so that they can find him when they're seeking after him at midnight on the threshing floor with piles and piles and piles of grain from the harvest that still have to be winnowed and that's his job. It's the promise of Jesus 
that he'll be baptizer in the Holy Ghost and with fire. And he has a big fan in his hand and he's going to blow away all the worthless chaff that once had purpose and it did hold a kernel of wheat, but now it's finished. We're after the kernel. Let the chaff blow away. Let it fall into a path, into a pile that's going to be burned. But I'm after the wheat that is seed that can be replanted, feed the hungry too. But uh, most of it has to go into the ground for a further harvest because now we're looking to end time harvest. When he brought Ruth out of the field into his arms, it was two things. It was now I have someone who hears my heart for the harvest. She'll understand I have to be out in the fields. She'll understand how my heart throbs to get my inheritance in the harvest that has been promised me and what I must do to prepare that harvest. She'll love the tents of the Feast of Tabernacles, living on the harvest field with me. Not just trying to glean something so she can be satisfied, but now, as the wife of the Lord of the harvest, as the bride redeemed, she's going to be interested in the fields that were Malins that have never been fulfilled. She's going to be interested in those fields that have been lying waste that she's directly connected to. But she's going to get a bigger vision. She's going to care for all my fields, all my harvest. And in the end, she's going to be fruitful herself. But her great privilege is to love the Lord of Harvest, submit to the Lord of Harvest, and though the story doesn't take you there, I want to ask you this question. Do you think she always stayed in the house and let Boaz go to the fields? I don't think so. I think that girl had been brought up from being a foreigner, what some would consider an intruder, poor, needy, insecure, despised, rejected, got healed, saved, redeemed, came, but now got healed by the grace of Boaz. But his great desire was not for her to glean, 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 glean for her own needs. Even when you go to a conference, I say to my students over and over and over, remember what I'm giving you now is not for you alone. It is for those whom you will minister to. It's for those that you will harvest. It's for those you will walk with through redemption. It's for those you're going to bring to the lamb. You're going to win for the lamb the rewards of his sacrifice. Last weekend I was ministering in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, <laughs> where the Moravians settled it. Is there a musician in the house? In the name of Jesus now, we give you thanks, Heavenly Father, that you have redeemed our lives from destruction, that you've given us a marvelous Redeemer in Jesus. We want to respond to his love. We want to lay ourselves at your feet, Lord Jesus. We want to say, redeem me. Cast the corner of your mantle over me. Bring me into your heart. Bring me into your house. Heal my life. Make me fruitful. 
but that's what you do because you love us, Lord Jesus. But because we love you, we say share your heart for the harvest with me. Help me to understand the times and the seasons of harvest. Help me to enter into my rightful place being raised up to sit together with you. Or I'm not just trying to find a little corner in the field where I can glean and do something and serve, but where I can come out with you and get the full vision of the full harvest and that I can see the proportions of the harvest and I can look out and see how many laborers we have and I can turn to you as my beloved one and I can say, oh, master of the harvest, send forth more laborers. I've been out there. We're not going to catch the harvest. And because we have caught your heart for the harvest, we don't want it to be lost. I pray throughout this weekend that you will transform us from women who are taken up with ourselves to those who are concerned not for our own inheritance only, but for your inheritance. Because as a high priest, you don't need a piece of land of your own. You own the world. Your inheritance is people. We pray, O oh Father, that you will help us to have a part in giving Jesus his inheritance more and more. In Jesus' name, amen.